Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Grantham Church. Welcome to worship. If you're joining us through the live stream, my name is David Flowers. I'm a senior pastor here at Grantham. We're so glad that you chose to worship with us today. We are continuing our fall sermon series, The Gospel of the kingdom, what it is, why it matters, and how it mobilizes the church. We are in week three now of this seven-week sermon series. Jesus said the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. But what is the gospel of the kingdom, and what does it mean to believe it and to partner with God in his kingdom work? That's what we're doing in this series. If you're just joining us for this sermon series, we're using good news and kingdom of God this way. This is how we are defining it. Uh, What is the good news? We say this is the gospel story of how God has been at work in the world and is now redeeming it in Jesus Christ, who will one day return to bring the fullness of the kingdom. Looks like we're having some technical difficulties, so at some point that will come up on the screen. Again, this is the gospel story of how God has been at work in the world and is now redeeming it in Jesus Christ. And one day upon his return will bring the consummation of the kingdom. So this story encompasses the the story of, of Israel. So that's the Old Testament, the larger biblical story. It also encompasses the story of Jesus the Messiah, his life, his teachings, his death and resurrection and ascension, right? He sits on to the right hand of the Father in power and authority and will one day return. And we anticipate his return as a church. And then the kingdom of God, we have defined it this way, the reign and the rule of God on the earth, which always looks like Jesus always looks like Jesus. How do you know you're seeing the kingdom? Well, ask yourself, does it look like Jesus? Does it look like loving others, healing, reconciling, uh, giving of ourselves, self-sacrifice, showing mercy, doing justice, all of these things is the kingdom of God being manifested. Remember, this kingdom is what uh, theologians would say is already, but not yet. Jesus said that the kingdom of God is near, uh, but it's also not yet a fully present reality. So we live in the overlap of the ages. We say we're living in the present evil age, and we are looking forward to the age to come. But the cool thing is this, the future age to come has broken into the present. That is what is happening in this picture. Heaven is coming to earth And God's space and our space will be joined in Christ's return. Well, if our slides were working this morning, you could see that image. But hopefully, you've been here the last couple weeks, you can picture the image of the overlap of those spaces, right? So picture heaven and earth, the overlap of these spaces. Uh, It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, not just the sky and not just the stars and the cosmos, 
but other dimensions. Right? The scientists would even say that, other dimensions. And so in these other dimensions we would call heaven. Seems to be there are certain levels of this. Uh, we have certain indicators of that in the New Testament. But so these spaces, heaven, God's space, and earth, our space, are overlapping. In the Old Testament, remember, we get this image of that in the temple or the tabernacle before it. So in the tabernacle and the temple is this picture of heaven and earth coming together where God rests on the earth. Now, Jesus said, I am the temple. So Jesus is the temple on two feet. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it. So Christ, in his resurrection, is a picture of these two spaces becoming one. What does this tell us, and why do I keep harping on this? Because this is so important. It affects the way that you live. Your view of the future and where things are going affects you in the present. I mean, I've actually had people say, well, who cares about what happens on the earth or polluting the world or climate change or whatever because it's all going to burn. You see, that is a particular view of eschatology that is inconsistent with this idea of heaven and earth coming together. So we, we need to be careful embracing agnosticism, sort of this, this matrix idea that we're all going to wake up, fly away, detach ourselves from our body one day, and live in some ethereal existence in the clouds. This is not the Christian hope. This is why in Christian funerals, I really, yes, I have a belief that when people die, they are with, with Jesus. Paul seemed to have that hope. But the New Testament is far more concerned about what happens after that, right? Life after, life after death, right? That's what the scriptures are concerned with. And this is part of the good news story. Our hope is resurrection. Not that we die and are detached from our body and are with Jesus. Now, that's good. And some would say that's even better than what I'm living in right now. I get that. But what is even greater than that is resurrection. I was made for my body. You were made for the body. The stuff, God says, is good. So he wants to redeem it, restore it, renew it, resurrect it. So those spaces are coming together. We've already seen this in Jesus of Nazareth raised from the dead. You know, the longer I live and the more I'm a Christian, I just keep coming back to this resurrection idea and hope. If it wasn't for the resurrection, the cross has no meaning and power. If it wasn't for the resurrection, I'm not actually prone to believe a lot of the stuff that's in the New Testament. But because I have good reason to believe the tomb was empty and it was empty because Jesus walked out, all of the faith makes sense. All of the dots are connected. We actually have hope for the future. Does that make sense? I mean, this is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that without the resurrection of the dead, our faith is futile. Our hopes have no weight and no meaning. But they do in Christ, the cross, and the resurrection. And as in this picture, we've also said that hell is something that we've created. We can enter into that dehumanizing process, becoming less and less human in this world. We can do that, and we can, through sin and death and making bad choices, we can become what God doesn't want us to be and enter a hell on earth that can, in some mysterious way we don't know, extend into the age to come and be final. That's not what God wants. We saw that last week in the gospel in chairs. You remember that? You were here. If you missed that, I encourage you to go back and, and watch that. I think this is a powerful illustration of what the gospel story is all about and how God continues to confront us with his love. Amen? 
So let's keep this image in mind as we now read from Colossians this morning. I know Pastor Dave uh, read this a little while ago, at least a portion of it, but open your Bible up. I want to just walk through some of this verse by verse. This is Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. So this is Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Small epistle of Paul, but very weighty and powerful. Reading from the NIV under the subheading, The Supremacy of the Son of God. Verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Isn't that good? That is powerful. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This is going back to the idea that I was just articulating that Jesus is the first. Not that Jesus was created. The church denounced that heresy a long time ago. Jesus is eternal. Paul's going to tell us that in Colossians. John will tell us that in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created by Christ through Christ. Christ is eternal. So the firstborn over the dead is this idea that Jesus has gone first. Heaven and earth coming together. Christ is the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. It makes me think back when Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. Who said I am? God did, back in the Exodus. This got Jesus in trouble. They wanted to kill him for this. But Jesus is eternal. Paul is telling us this. And he is, verse 18, the head of the body, that is the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now, I want you to watch this. We're talking about identity today. And I want you to see that because of what Jesus does, he has fundamentally changed the way we experience death. Paul in another place says that death has lost its sting. What death would have meant for us, it no longer means because Jesus has been raised. Verse 18, so that everything he might have supremacy. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. This is why we say that God shows us what, or that Jesus shows us what God is like, what God has always been like. We've not always known this, but now we do. Hallelujah. And that through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, once you were alienated from God, Paul said, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. And Paul say in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Paul says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in this gospel, 
This is the gospel that you have heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Verse 24, now I rejoice in what I am suffering. Right, this is how I make sense of the things, of the pain, of the, of the turmoil, of the suffering and trial and tribulation I experience in life. And I fill up in my flesh, Paul said, what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. And Paul would say elsewhere, and this is what I think he means here, I am sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. This is how I make sense of what I'm now experiencing in the world. It's not for nothing. Paul would say this again at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, right? He says that to stand firm, dear brothers and sisters, for you know, you remember this verse, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The trials, the tribulation, the pain, the death, whatever you're experiencing, good news. God isn't going to take that garden that we've been working on and pave over it with concrete. You see, that's what it would look like if we believed that first level, that popular version of the gospel, right? In that, in that graphic I've been showing you the last couple weeks. That's what that would mean. But that's not what it means. It does matter. It does count. And it is for something. And God's going to take all of that stuff that we have done, the garden that we have tilled and worked on, and He's going to work it out. He's going to make it count for eternity. Amen? This is the gospel. And he says, I have come, verse 25, it's, is its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. We, he, Paul's saying, we didn't always understand this, but now we do. And, and the Lord has revealed it to us through Jesus. The mystery that's been kept hidden for ages is now known. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, that is all non-Jews, because first God worked through the Jewish story, through Israel's story, but now it's, the invitation has been given to all of us, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is, look at this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. The ultimate aim of the gospel and the good news. Now look at this. We've gone from this larger, this larger story, this cosmic story, down to you. Christ in you. And actually the you here in the Greek is plural. So it's not just you as an individual. That does count. But it's to you, the church. Christ in in you. We're going to expound on that this morning. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. This is a disciple, folks, that we would be presented fully mature in Christ. That's that sanctification process that we should be living into even now. And then lastly, verse 29, to this end, Paul said, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. He's telling the Colossian church, and he would tell us too, this is the point of discipleship, that you would take all of that good theology that you've just heard, and that you would work it out in your life. Since this is true, what Christ has done, what Christ will do, how this has totally impacted the way we encounter and experience death, and what God's going to do in the future, 
and let it work itself out in your life. Amen? So to sum up, what is Paul saying? He's saying Christ is central and supreme. He is the beginning and the end of the story. The good news, he would say, is a larger redemptive story as we've been seen in the heaven-to-earth image, but ultimately it goes to the very core of who we are. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And since Christ himself is the good news, if there's ever any doubt, what's the kingdom, what's the gospel, look at Jesus. Christ himself is the good news. And so we can say Paul is really speaking of God getting the gospel in you. It's not just a message out here. A message that we tell, a message that we, we understand uh, intellectually and we give mental assent to. But Paul is saying, get that story in you. Get the story in you. Get the good news inside of you, which is why I'm entitled this message, Gospel in You. And church, here's the claim that, that goes to the very heart of today's message. This isn't on the screen. You might write this down. And that is this. We can only know who God is, who we are, and how to make sense of our place in the world through Christ and the gospel. Now, let me say that again, and let this sink into our hearts and our minds. We can only know who God is, who we are, and how to make sense of our place in the world through Christ and the gospel. Now, I'm aware, and you should be aware, that this is a radically subversive thing to say today. Radically subversive. And that's for a variety of reasons. For example, some would say, now, who are you to claim that you can know God? And who are you to claim to know that Jesus is the only way to know the creator of the universe? And besides... Someone might say this, I believe the answers I'm looking for are found within, not through God or religion or an ancient book or even a group of people or a belief system. As you know, some people seem quite content on finding their identity and and creating their own meaning. Now, I want you to to think about that. If If you've ever felt that way or you've certainly heard this communicated in one way or another in our society, Right? I believe I have the answers. I just need to look within, not through God or religion or an ancient book or anything like this. Folks, that is essentially what taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was all about. I don't need God for life. I can get it from within myself. Remember what the serpent said. You can be like God. Well, the thing is, I'm kind of a partial truth. They were already like God. They were already like God, made in his image, but they were not God. And as soon as they started to act like God, and they reached within themselves to find the answers, what did they find? Sin and death and separation from God. Darkness, hell on earth. So this is why this is so critical that we get this right. You know, but we as believers in Christ and the gospel of the kingdom, we see things a bit differently than that, as subversive as this might be. For starters, if we understand the message of the Bible, the larger biblical story of creation, fall, redemption, and resurrection, 
and that this is at the heart of the good news of Jesus, we must acknowledge that we are made in God's image, but we are broken and not as we should be. Let me say that again. We are made in God's image, but we are broken and not as we should be. So what do you run in today, into today in our culture? Everybody wants to affirm everything about you. And if we don't do that, then somehow we're being inauthentic with ourselves, and it could be that we're being intolerant or bigots toward others, or whatever that looks like, whatever it is that they're claiming or saying. And so sometimes I wonder, and I hear Christians say this, I'm like, where is your Christian theology? Where is your understanding of that biblical narrative, creation, of fall, of redemption, restoration, resurrection, that we are made in God's image but broken and not as we should be, that none of us get a pass? All of our feelings, our emotions, our orientations, whatever they are, all must come under the authority of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? We have to run it through the gospel. We are in need of being transformed by the gospel. So our feelings, our views, our identity, yes, even our so-called rational thinking has been affected by sin, which has distorted reality and our understanding of who we are, what is true, and what is good. And of course, I know this runs contrary to the current spirit of the age, which you've heard me refer to as expressive Individualism. Now, I didn't come up with that term, expressive individualism. This is a term used by philosophers such as Charles Taylor. Some of you have seen his book, A Secular Age. It's about this big. I can't even get my fingers as big as I think that book is. Uh, Charles Taylor, he, talks, he uses this phrase to talk about the way that we think about being selves in our postmodern world. Expressive individualism particularly refers to the idea that in order to be fulfilled and to be an authentic person, to be genuinely me, I need to be able to express outwardly or perform publicly that which I feel I am inside. But for our secular age, this is how we're told that we should think about who we are and how we discover our identity. And we should note that this is This is the first time in the history of humanity that we have ever thought of ourselves in this way. And I want to say welcome to the decay of Western society. And I hope that that statement becomes clear as we move along in this message. But you may say, but Pastor David, wait a minute. Aren't we supposed to be honest with ourselves? Doesn't Christianity warn against hypocrisy, like not being genuine, not being authentic? What about someone like Augustine? Remember the saint, Saint Augustine, and his, what some might say, expressive individualism seen in his autobiography. Anyone ever read Augustine's Confessions? I mean, that guy lays everything out on the table. Every wicked thought and inclination and feeling that this guy had, and he especially uh, wrestled with sexual sins, he confesses it. That's why we call it Augustine's Confessions, right? He confesses it, and some would say, well, isn't that what he's doing? But, But think about this. For Christians, our authenticity has a unique gospel aim or goal. As the author and church historian Carl Truman points out, Augustine's expressive individualism, his confessions, 
His crying out to God is always a result of him moving inward in order to move outward to God. Moving inward in order to move outward to God. He's not moving inward simply to work out how he needs to express himself to his friends and his neighbors. He's moving inward in order to reach upwards to God and to try to bring that which is inward to conformity to the external will of God. Do you follow that? And that's because, and Truman says, a Christian knows that inwardly he or she is sinful and therefore needs to repent of this, needs to change, needs to stop, needs to turn, needs to go in the direction of God's will, to turn to God, to go inwards in order to turn outwards toward God and toward Christ. That's where real authenticity lies. And so, this is where we must begin if we're going to allow the gospel to penetrate ourselves and to help us to understand who we are and how God is calling us to live in this world. And that looks like this. I am made in God's image, but I am broken and not as I should be. Lord Jesus, show me the parts that are broken because I know that I don't get a pass. It was a couple weeks ago I said that Jesus is coming after us with a scalpel. Now, I know that sounds a little scary, a little violent. I don't mean to, you know. Jesus is the master surgeon. And he wants to remove the bits and pieces of us that don't reflect God's will and image. The parts of us that are broken, that are marred by the fall. This is what the Christian journey is all about. This is what the gospel is intended to do when it gets inside of us. Before we think more deeply about this new identity and kingdom calling, we have as Christ followers. Think for just a second about how in the many things that actually shape our identity on a regular basis. Think about some of these things. What I want you to notice about all of these things too is they're not inherently bad. It just depends on what's being said and what angle it's coming from. For example, the words and the opinions of others. Now, how many of you can think of someone in your life that has spoken words over you and shared their opinion, and it really impacted you in a positive way, right? Had a a positive impact, and it seemed consistent with the gospel and what God thinks about you. Now, I'm willing to bet that some of you can think even more quickly about the things and the thoughts and the opinions that were spoken over you that doesn't reflect God's will, is not reflective of the gospel, and has hurt you and damaged you. If you can attest to that, would you just raise your hand? I have had someone speak ill words over me, and it's affected who I am. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. I think we all have. They can impact who we are, what we think of ourselves, and our place in the world. So recognize that. Also, Other things that impact our identity are society and culture. More than you can possibly understand, through media, through trends, what is politically correct, what is popular in the world. A lot of this stuff is just intuitive. You know, it's not like they don't teach classes on this. This is what's trendy and what you should accept is good and true. No, it just makes its way into your mind and in your heart and in your thinking through media, through television, through movies, through books, through TED Talks, I don't know. This is how it happens. Now, I told you, this isn't all inherently bad. But if we don't have a filter, if we don't know the Scriptures, if we're not living into the Gospel story, then what are the chances that we're going to be able to sift through that and do that well? 
And so a lot of the, the chances are we end up going with the flow of the world. This is why Paul said, don't be conformed, you know this verse, to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need to get your thinking right about this. You need to wake up to this, that this is at work. The culture is trying to condition you. Also, our hurt, our pain, and our failures are things that shape our identity. Also, our choices and our behaviors. This is why our choices are, are, are so um, important, because when we choose to do certain things, they become us. Right? Just in the way that we become like what we worship. Worship isn't just where you're singing on Sunday morning or in your car or wherever. Worship is life and what you orient your loves to. And so the orientation of your heart and the decisions that you make are becoming you. It's making you who you are and who you forever will be. So which direction are you going in? And you know, this is one of those things you, you have to be intentional about. In fact, by being unintentional, you are actually being intentional. In this case, going with the way of the world. So the words and opinions of others, our society and culture, our hurt, pain, and failures, our choices and behaviors, our thoughts, right? This is why Paul elsewhere said, take captive your thoughts. This is the power that God has given us to take captive our thoughts. A thought comes into my head. Now, a lot of us are tempted to think, oh, I just feel terrible because I had that thought. Well, you're a sinner. Surprise. This is what happens. We have some weird, crazy, messed up thoughts. Aren't you glad that people can't read your thoughts? I, you know, but that's not who you are, and you need to know that. It isn't who you are instil, in, until you embrace the thought and begin to act on it. Begin to make it. You own it. You see the thoughts passing by your head all the time, just like movie clips. And you can grab a hold of one of those thoughts, and you can make it your own, and you can act on it. And it does, be, it becomes you. This is why Paul said we've been given the power to take thoughts captive. And that is bad thoughts, but also the good thoughts. What is, what is noble? What did Paul say? Set your, thing, your mind on things that are noble, pure, holy, good, true. You know, those things. Because what you think about is what you become. And then also the things that shape our identity, the story. The story that we're living into. Is it the American story? Is it the me-centered story? The world revolves around me? Or is it this gospel story that we've been articulating? This is the story I submit to you that gives us life. So we need to apply the gospel to all of these things. Again, all of this is inherently bad, but if we don't have the gospel and we don't have Christ and this good news message that we're filtering this through, well, what chance do we have? It will shape our identity. So let's return to the gospel story here and hear what the Apostle Paul says about our identity in Christ and what it means for how we live in the world. Let's go back to Colossians, this time chapter 3. A couple chapters later, Paul says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. You say, well, I've been raised with Christ? When did that happen? I must have missed it. If Paul is speaking about a, a heavenly reality, that something, something has happened way over here that is impacting you over here. 
Now, if you're into physics, I know there's a couple of people in our congregation who are, you've heard of quantum entanglement. It's very crazy, weird stuff. And scientists still don't understand it. That some particle way over here, disconnected from everything else, can affect particles over here. Now, I know this doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but Paul says, this is the, which reality are you going to live into? I mean, because some realities don't really make a lot of sense up front and up close, but we still live into them. You know, so think about this. Listen to what Paul says. You have been raised with Christ. You can believe that or not. That when Jesus died, you died with him. And when Jesus was raised, he raised you. This has fundamentally impacted who you are. It's impacted your life's course and what happens after death. So he says, set your heart on things above. Your hearts, that is your affections. Set your affections, not on earthly things, not on carnal things, not on pleasing yourself, but set your affections on Christ and the real order of things. And then he says, set your mind. Verse 2, set your mind on things above. Change your thinking about what's really going on and who you really are and what the good news is. You say, I don't, still don't understand what you're saying. Well, okay, well, let me give you an example. I love movies. You, some of you know this. Um, I, in fact, I, I, I aspired to be an actor once before. And I, I, I suppose that if I was ever going to do that for a living, I would probably be one of these method actors. You've ever heard of method acting? Uh, folks like Daniel Day-Lewis, when he was making the movie Gangs of New York, they said he lived in character offset, and he never took a bath, and he smelled. And he was a very vulgar person to be around. And folks like did not want to be around Daniel Day-Lewis. But one of the greatest actors of all time. Heath Ledger played the Joker in the last Batman iteration. He was a method actor. May have some to do with some issues he was dealing with before his death. Christian Bale is a method actor. That dude's lost so much weight. You ever seen The Machinist? I mean, he looks skin and bones, and then he's gained a lot of weight for parts. They live their parts offset. They, they say, I'm going to become this person. Now, folks, we know this kind of thing can be done. So what is more truer than the gospel? What is more truer than Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected? And so like method actors, we just need to embrace these truths and this reality so that we can begin to live into the story on set and off the set. Look at verse Four, when Christ who is your life appears, that is when Christ returns, you will also appear with him in glory. Paul's saying, you died and you've been raised. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. This is God's attitude. His affections are set on you. He confronts us with his love because he made us in his image and he will not forsake us. In verse 5, Paul says, put to death then. Because this is true, because this is the reality that you need to live into, then this is how you should live. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, whatever belongs to our carnality, things like, and he just gives some examples of some stuff, sexual immorality, so sexual deviations, living in ways that isn't what God designed for us that leads to human flourishing, impurity of all forms, lust, evil, 
desires and greed, which is idolatry. Look at this, verse 6. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Uh, you know, you, someone could say through the articulation of the gospel and chairs last week that maybe we don't believe in the wrath of God. And we say, no, that's not true. The wrath of God is a real thing. But it's not angry dad looking for somebody to beat and take it out on. Wrath is something we accrue. We can say it's God's because God has built it in to space and time. He's built it into his universe. And when you, when you go against the grain of things, Paul says, when you sow certain evil and sin and death, then you will reap the consequences of that. That is what we would say is wrath. So we for ourselves accrue these things by all of these kinds of behaviors, but praise God, we don't get it because of Jesus. So because of these, the wrath of God is coming. I think that's how we should understand that. And you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but no longer. Look at what he says, verse 8. Now you must rid yourselves of all such things, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. This isn't who you are. This doesn't fit your new identity. Do not lie to each other. Since you've taken off your old self with its practices, Paul's using language like uh, taking clothes off, putting clothes on. I think I'm Mr. Rogers. You know, every time the guy came home, he changed pairs of shoes or sweaters. You know, this is like it is. Take off the old, put on the new. Every day we have to make those decisions. Am I going to live into my new identity or not? Am I going to go with the gospel story? Am I going to go with the world story? And put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Work it out, Paul says. Verse 10 there, I mean, that, that word, that phrase actually being renewed, is a Greek word that Paul seems to have invented. We have no use of this word anywhere else. It's the, it has the prefix for the word resurrection on it, meaning to grow up, to be changed, to make new. As you come to know God in Christ more and more, it's really just returning to the true image of your Creator. My friends, listen, in order... For us to live into this way, into the gospel, we must be willing to deny ourselves, as Jesus said, to take up our cross. We must refuse to live for what we want, start living for what God wants for us and in us. So do you love God more than your sin? A question worth asking. One more verse here. Look, he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, 17, Christ died for all, and those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Paul's saying our mind, our thinking about this has been changed. We're all method actors now. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Believe in the new, church. This is the gospel truth about who you are in Christ. But the only way to live into this and, and, and to experience the life of it is to be actively resisting the forces that tell us otherwise. How do we do that? Real quick, as we begin to wind down, how do we do that? Here's some questions you can ask yourself. And going back to that list of things that influence and shape our identity, ask yourself when you're confronted by these things that seek to shape your identity. Number one, ask yourself, how does this compare to what the Bible says? How does it compare to what the Bible says? Now, how, how can you answer that? You, the only way to answer that question is to know what the Bible says. 
It's important to read the scriptures. Here, here's another question. Ask yourself this. Is this consistent? Is this consistent with my new identity in Christ? Or is it part of the patterns of the world? And three, ask yourself this. Does this help me live into the gospel story? I think those are some important questions that can guide us in filtering out the things that we're hearing and experiencing. The voices, the opinions, the culture, whatever it is. Filter it through the, with these questions. And finally, I want to ask that you reflect and respond to this, to these two questions. Ask yourself this, church. Am I, am I applying the gospel to my identity? What, what, what story, what narrative am I living into? What voices am I listening to? Do I know, do I know what the scriptures say? Have I embraced um, this expressive individualism or have I embraced the good news? that says I'm made in God's image but broken and not as I should be. Are you applying the gospel to your identity? And then number two, how is God inviting you to repent and to believe? Is that what Jesus said? Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord, folks. This is the gospel. This is what makes the church so uniquely different from the world. May God give us the strength to believe it and to walk in this truth. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gospel and how it impacts our soul. Lord, there's so many competing forces, so many competing allegiances. The spirit of the age is so powerful, it seems. But we believe that your gospel is more powerful. We believe that what Christ has done in dying, we died with him, and being raised, we were raised with him. We believe. Help us, Lord, with our unbelief. God, we ask this morning that you would get the gospel in us. Help us to love you more than our sin, to repent and believe the good news. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.